welcome to this bonus episode of the History of European Theatre podcast and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Salome, Oscar Wilde and Lazarus Theatre I'm sure you all know the works of Oscar Wilde, Lady Windermere's fan, a woman of no importance, an ideal husband and of course the importance of being earnest. In little more than three years he wrote these four plays that have become staples of the English stage and beyond. He always had detractors, people who objected to his social commentary in these plays and some who disliked his larger-than-life personality, found his sharp wit all too superior and condescending and knew of or sensed his personal preferences for the company of young men. But great as these plays are, and if they were all we had, we would still consider him a great dramatist of his day, there is more to Oscar Wilde. The wit of his essays and diaries the long-lasting power of his short novel The Picture of Dorian Gray, the charm of the short story The Happy Prince and the pathos of The Ballad of Reading Jail. I could go on because there's still more. This summer, I had the chance to see a production of his verse play, Salome, produced by Lazarus Theatre at the Southwark Playhouse in London. It was one of my early trips back to theatre as they began to reopen after closures forced by the COVID-19 pandemic and my first since then to a small studio theatre. Salome is an appropriate piece for a small theatre, being claustrophobic and intense, but before I tell you something about the specifics of that production, here's a short biography of Oscar Wilde and his work to put him into context. I will eventually get to Oscar Wilde in the main podcast, of course, and do him the justice he and his work deserve there, but that's a long way off as things stand at the moment. Some 400 years of theatre history separate him from the end of the medieval period, so lots to cover, and it's going to take a while and the short biography here seems appropriate. So Oscar Wilde. He was born in Dublin, Ireland, on October 16th, 1854, the second son of Sir William Wilde, who was an eye and ear surgeon of some renown. His mother, Lady Wilde, was an Irish nationalist of the literary type. She published essays and poems and stories under the name Speranza, which means hope. As well as his older brother, Willis, Wilde had a younger sister, Isola, but she died young, aged just nine, an event that Wilde mourned for the rest of his life. At the age of ten, Wilde was sent to the Pretoria Free School in Ulster, where he first discovered his love of art and philosophy of the ancient Greeks, something that was to guide his thinking throughout the rest of his life. It was even at this young age that he became known for his flamboyant manner of dress. From school he went to Trinity College Dublin and then to Magdalen Community College at Oxford University where he continued his study of the classics and became particularly enamoured with the work of John Rustkin and Walter Peters' theories for devotion to art and its intrinsic value. Art for art's sake, as the French expression of the time held. Art was there, the exponents contended, not just for some general moral purpose but for its own intrinsic value. Encapsulated in that was the similar idea that beauty could also exist for its own sake. This was the message that Wilde took up when he went to London after university through the persona he adopted, that of the aesthete. It was 1879 when Wilde left Oxford for London and he soon became known as a witty conversationalist. Cartoons in Punch, the popular British magazine of the day, satirised the aesthetic movement and was soon including caricatures of Wilde, taking full advantage of his like for outlandish dress and his love of sunflowers and lilies. In 1880, Wilde published his first play, Vera or The Nihilist, and in 1881 he published a book of poems, but both of which received mixed reviews. That same year, Wilde was invited to lecture in America, and his tour received enormous publicity. 
1883, he returned briefly to London, but then left to live and write in Paris, where he completed his second play, The Duchess of Padua. On the 29th of May, 1884, he married Constance Lloyd, the daughter of an Anglo-Irish barrister. They set up home in London and the marriage produced two children, Cyril and Vivian, in the following two years. Constance is an interesting character in her own right, an author and political and social activist, but now overshadowed somewhat by her husband's story and his literary genius. It's not clear how soon she became aware of his activities with younger men, or indeed at what point those activities became an addiction for him. But not long after the birth of their second son, Wilde was spending many days and nights away from the family home, living in hotels to ostensibly give him space to write, but it also gave him freedom to pursue affairs with men. In 1890, Wilde published his first major literary work and only novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray. The story was originally published in Lippincott's magazine, with passages of about 500 words edited out without Wilde's knowledge. This was due to fears that the work could be prosecuted under laws guarding public morality. A fuller version was published the following year, with a defence of the premise of the novel inserted by Wilde. It was a work that offended many, but many others saw a spark of genius in it. The following year, Wilde wrote Salome, a one-act tragedy in French taking on the biblical story of the death of John the Baptist, King Herod's stepdaughter Salome, and the dance of the Seven Veils. He offered it to French actress Sarah Bernhardt, who planned to present it at the Royal English Opera House, now the Palace Theatre in London. But the plan was thwarted by the public censor, the Lord Chamberlain, whose official approval was needed for all new plays before they could be staged in England. Of this play, he said, This piece is written in French, half biblical, half pornographic, by Oscar Wilde himself. Imagine the average British public's reception to it. The necessary licence was denied on the grounds that the play depicted biblical characters, which was one of the more arcane rules that the Lord Chamberlain had at his disposal. That was probably just an excuse, and it was the more general moral tone of the piece that was found to be so offensive. Bernhardt and Wilde protested, but no production was forthcoming. In fact, the play wasn't produced until 1896 in Paris and in the original French, by which time Wilde was unable to attend, being by then an inmate at Reading Jail. The play wasn't produced in England until 1905, and only in a private performance. It was 1911 before a full public commercial production was given, this at the Court Theatre, now the Royal Court Theatre. But still, it wasn't well received by the theatrical establishment. While writing Salome, Wilde was already working on the play that was to become Lady Windermere's Fan, a comedy with a social message, and in 1892 it made it to the London stage. The play was a success with audiences, but received a mixed critical response. In an incredibly productive three years, Wilde continued to write plays, producing A Woman of No Importance in 1893 and An Ideal Husband in 1895. These plays made his reputation, but the best was still to come. The Importance of Being Earnest, produced in 1895, was a popular and critical success. But Wilde's life was already spiralling out of control, and his extravagant lifestyle and blatant disregard for caution in his private life was about to catch up with him. In Victorian England, laws that had existed since the time of Henry VIII banned any homosexual act in public or private. The law had been amended in 1861 to reduce the maximum sentence from death to ten years to life in prison. The last person to be executed for such acts by the state in England was in 1836. It was 1891 when Wilde met the much younger Lord Alfred Douglas. 
they soon became lovers. Wilde became devoted to Douglas, despite his often petulant and argumentative nature, but he also carried on casual affairs with other young men, some of whom were male prostitutes. Douglas's father, the Marquis of Queensbury, was enraged by the relationship and harassed Wilde, convinced that it must be the older man who had led his son astray. In 1894, Queensbury left a calling card at Wilde's club on which he had written, For Oscar Wilde, posing sodomite, by which he meant sodomite, the legal term for a homosexual. Urged on by Douglas, Wilde sued Queensbury for libel, but at the trial, Queensbury presented evidence of some of Wilde's relationships with young men. Wilde dropped his case, but the damage had been done. For all of his reading of the Greeks, it seems that Wilde was not immune to hubris. Ignoring the advice of friends to leave the country in the face of the inevitable, he was arrested and tried on the basis of the evidence presented by Queensbury at the previous trial. The jury couldn't reach a verdict, but Wilde then had to stand trial for a second time, and this time was convicted. He was sentenced to two years of hard labour, which he served in Reading Jail. Conditions were harsh and his health soon suffered. His experiences in jail produced one of his finest works, the poem The Ballad of Reading Jail where he dispassionately examines the brutalisation of the prison system and in a poignant moment of self-reflection that would have been unrecognisable to his younger self, he ends the poem saying And all men kill the thing they love. By all let this be heard. Some do it with a bitter look, some with a flattering word. The coward does it with a kiss, the brave man with a sword. He was released in 1897 and knowing he would be outcast from English society he went directly to France. He was bankrupt and never permitted to see his children again and in poor health. He lived quietly in France using the pseudonym Sebastian Melmoth until his death from a form of meningitis in November 1900. At the time he was living in a small hotel and it seems he hated the room that he felt trapped in. He lived, was caught out and died by his wit. His last words were allegedly, This wallpaper and I are fighting a duel to the death. Either it goes, or I do. So, Salome is not what we think of as a typical Oscar Wilde play. It was written as a poetic tragedy, a long way from the popular comedies and intricate wordplay that he's best known for. As the play opens, the young Syrian, a captain of the guard, a Cappadocian, a Numidian, and other guards and pages stand on the great terrace of Herod's palace. It is night, the moon is shining. At the back of the terrace is a large cistern in which Jochanan, the prophet John the Baptist, is imprisoned. The young captain repeatedly speaks of how beautiful Salome is, but the others warn him that he shouldn't look at her so much. Doing so, and so blatantly, can only end badly. They admire the moon. To the page of Herodias, the moon seems like a dead woman, but for the captain it's a dancing princess. This leads the Cappadocian, the Numidian and the soldiers to discuss various views about the nature of God or gods. The first soldier says that the Hebrews worship a god who can't be seen and the Cappadocian can only think that such a belief is meaningless. In his country he proclaims there are no gods left. From the cistern Jochanan speaks of the coming of Christ which prompts those gathered to discuss the nature of the prophecies and whether he is a holy man or a rambling madman. Salome, stepdaughter of King Herod, enters, saying that she can no longer stay in the banqueting hall with Herod and her mother Herodias. She too is attracted to the sight of the moon, seeing it as a vision of everything that is pure. She has never defiled herself, she says. 
Her thoughts are interrupted by Jokinen calling out from the cistern and she asks the guards to bring him to her so she can speak with him. They all protest that on the king's orders the prophet cannot be removed from the prison but finally she persuades the captain of the guard by using her charms and promising favours to bring him out. Jokinen is released and begins to speak against Herodias. Despite his tirade against her mother, Salome is fascinated by the prophet. She tells him his body is beautiful and how she wants to touch him, but he insults her, calling her the daughter of Babylon and telling her not to speak to him. She, however, cannot stop and speaks further of his appearance, saying that his tangled hair is terrible, but that she, but that she desires his mouth. She tells him to let her kiss his mouth. He continues to rail against her, but she is impervious and repeatedly says that she will kiss his mouth. The captain, horrified by her behaviour and desire for another man, begs Salome to stay away from Jokanan, but she will not listen, and in despair he kills himself, falling dead between them. Jokanan tells Salome to seek the son of man, but when she just continues to tell him to let her kiss his mouth, he says she is cursed and he goes back into the cistern. Herod, Herodias and the rest of the court enter and Herod immediately slips on the blood of the captain. When he's told that he's killed himself, Herod says that he's sorry to hear this but that he was aware that he looked at Salome too much. Herodias repeatedly points out that Herod also looks at her daughter too much. Jokinon's voice is heard again prophesying from the cistern and Herodias reminds Herod that the prophet constantly insults her and that he should be made to be quiet. Herod says that Jokinon is a holy man and that he has seen God. When Jokinon says that the saviour of the world has come, Herod assumes he means Caesar. But the two Nazareans say that he's referring to the new Messiah, who has come and is working miracles. When he's told this Messiah is healing lepers and the blind and raising the dead, Herod says that the man must be found and told that he cannot raise the dead, that the king would not permit it. Jokinon continues to speak against Herodias to the queen's annoyance, but Herod acknowledges that their marriage is the cause of the prophet's terrible words. Herodias was originally his brother's wife. The prophet says a terrible day will come when the moon turns blood red. Herod asks Salome to dance for him, but she refuses. He promises her whatever she wants, even if it's half his kingdom. Herodias tells Salome not to dance, but the princess decides that she will. Herod then points out that the moon has just become as red as blood, just as Jokinen predicted. Herodias pleads again with her daughter not to dance, but Salome performs for Herod, and when she is finished and he asks her what reward she desires, she asks for the head of Jokinen. Herodias approves the request, but Herod is terrified. He begs Salome to ask for something else, offering her his great emerald and fifty of his peacocks, but she is unmoved and repeats her request for the head of Jokinen. Herod tells Salome that Jokinen is a man of God and that a great misfortune will come to them if he dies, but she persists until Herod finally takes the ring of death from his finger and gives it to a soldier who hands it to the executioner. The executioner then goes down into the cistern. Salome listens closely as Jokinen is beheaded and wonders why the prophet doesn't cry out. The executioner brings the head of Jokinen on a silver shield. Salome seizes it, speaks to it, saying that now she will kiss his mouth and bite it like a ripe fruit. Herod says that someone has committed a great crime and demands that the torches be put out. He begins to climb the stairs as Salome continues to speak, saying that now she has kissed the mouth of Jokinen. 
Herod turns towards Salome and shouts out, Kill that woman! and the soldiers move to crush her. Even from that brief summary, I think you can see what the Victorian-era audience would have found offensive, even if we ignore the official reason for censorship, the portrayal of biblical characters. A number of different religious beliefs are debated in the first part of the play, those with one god, those with many gods and those with no gods. And although the pagans agree that their gods are vengeful and brutal, they have largely been driven off by the Romans, the Christian god does not give them any comfort either. The beliefs of the Jews and the followers of Christ are said to be altogether ridiculous. Victorian London and Paris would not have had a problem with the disparaging of pagan gods, but to deny the Christian god would have been offensive to the majority. It is interesting to note Wilde's depiction of Jews. He was writing at a time when Jews were very marginalised in society and had to tread carefully as they navigated everyday life outside of their own community. In most of Europe at the time, a Jew was never many steps away from some form of insult or violence being aimed at them. The Jew was a Shylock or a Fagin in the popular imagination, but Wilde steers clear of this vision. In the play, the Jews are not seen as out-and-out villains. In fact, Wilde shows them as too concerned with their own internal disputes to be effective or sustainable as a world religion. But he is pushing against a popular view. Perhaps an outsider seeing the plight of others outside the mainstream. And we can see the argument for the aesthetic transcending religion in the play. As Salome speaks over Jokinen's severed head, she exposes the flaw in his vision of Christianity. For once, it's not sexual desire that drives her speech, but a belief in the purity of love, and for love, read art. If thou hast looked at me, thou wouldst love me. Well, I know thou wouldst have loved me. And the mystery of love is greater than the mystery of death. Love is the only thing one should consider. So Salome, at the moment of death, can transcend the meaningless religions and find the purity of love and art. Now that's a very kind reading of the play, and such subtleties could easily be missed in the moment of the horror of Jokinen's head arriving on the platter and Salome's treatment of it. This is visceral stuff, and we should remember that the story has a long history in art. If you look at paintings of the story, of John's head, Salome and Herodias, then you'll see many of which are violent and sexualised, and of course, in the original Bible story, it's Herodias who persuades her daughter to dance and ask for John's head to be her reward. But for all that, Salome has become recognised in popular culture as a temptress, the young free-spirited woman who is a risk to respectable men, even kings. Her dance is passed over quickly in the Bible, and it is only with wild stage direction, Salome dances the dance of the seven veils, that it becomes known as such and itself becomes part of popular culture. That name, and another major theme in the play, suggests that the intention always was for this to be a sexually charged, even erotic dance. Sexual desire is a major theme. Salome is driven by it, Herod succumbs to it, Herodias curses it, and there's even a hint of the young soldiers are not immune to it. But it is Salome that stands out. As a woman expressing sexual desire, she would have been seen as particularly evil. In a time when sexual desire in women was hardly recognised and certainly not approved of, her desire for this man, whose primary function is to speak out against the evils of sexual desire, is outrageous. It's the erotic charge of the play that landed it in difficulties with the Lord Chamberlain. In other plays, Wilde wrote about women wrongly accused of immorality and found redemption for them, 
But here, Salome is nothing short of evil, driven by sexual desire, and she pays the ultimate price. But putting all the blame on Salome would be too simple for Wilde, and never his intention. The men are complicit in the events that lead to Jokinen's death. Herod is feared by his subjects, but for all his bluster, he's ultimately weak himself. And more subtly, there is the relationship between the young captain and the page of Herodias. When the captain kills himself, driven by desire for Salome and jealousy, the page speaks of gifts they have exchanged and hints at an intimate relationship. It's only a hint, but given what we know about Wilde, it seems impossible to think he did not intend for there to be love and homoeroticism expressed between the two young men represented in the play. Of course, there was no chance he could make that relationship explicit at the time. That would have definitely led to a licence to perform not being granted. And it may still be that it was more the subtle reference to homosexual love that got the play licence stopped, rather than the stated or other likely reasons. So what does a modern production of Salome bring? You might remember that I spoke to Ricky Dukes, artistic director of Lazarus Theatre, as a bonus episode when we were between the Roman and medieval seasons on the podcast. That was released in May 2020, if you want to go back and have another listen, or you can find it under bonus episodes on the podcast website. Ricky and I discussed modern productions of Roman and Greek theatre, how they speak to us today and how they find an audience. Ricky's intention with Lazarus Theatre is to create an ensemble that reimagines and revitalises classic plays in visual, visceral and vibrant productions. His production of Salome that ran at the Southwark Playhouse this summer was certainly all of those things, and Ricky and the cast worked through significant changes to the original script to bring that about. So let's start with the obvious. In this production, we have a Prince Salome. Obviously a very significant change. Well, yes and no. Recasting Salome as a young man is a bold move, but maybe not as bold as it might have been a few years ago. The visibility and acceptance of gender fluidity and the rights and interests of the LGBTQ community have changed enormously in the last few years, especially in a city like London. And although there are undoubtedly many challenges still to be overcome for individuals, I think it's true to say that there has been real positive progress recently. Gender, age and colourblind casting have become common and thankfully we can see performances that would never have been given a chance until recently. But here we have not just blind casting but a positive decision to change the play and to make it male-centric and therefore a gay-centric piece. The original had the hint of the male-to-male relationship but it is just a hint and here it's full-on and in your face. But this is not only between Herod and Prince Salome but the relationship between the young captain and the page is also highlighted and made more overt. In this production, the several minor characters were condensed into two parts, handily reducing the cast to six and condensing some of the original text. The play ran for just 75 minutes, making it work better as a one-act piece, and Ricky's adaptation removed much that is, to modern ears, quite overblown and superfluous to the point. Wilde relies on repetition to make some of the poetry sound significant and weighty, and frankly, sometimes it's a way too florid. So the play does benefit from some very good editing. With the removal of much of the discussion about religion, the moments between the page and the captain become focused on their relationship, and it's all quite tender, which is a nice balance to the full-on emotions displayed by Salome, Herod and Herodias. 
What I found particularly interesting was that the desire that Herod shows for Salome is more about the desire for his youth and beauty than for his sex. And in that way, the gender of the roles really is interchangeable. And it serves to emphasise that what is being examined here is desire in general and the absolute decadence of Herod. He's no bloated old tyrant. Indeed, he's handsome, young, apparently sophisticated man, but nevertheless a tyrant, both personally and publicly, haunted by Jochenen's message and little short of predatory by nature. This is where the gender switching adds something to the original play. Where Wilde was focused on the male gaze on the female form, through Herod and his lust for both his wife and his stepdaughter, we now have Herod lusting after a young man, who in turn lusts after the raw beauty of Jochenen. The characters don't exactly dance around each other, more at each other, as the power dynamic shifts from Herod to Salome to Jochenen and back. And we didn't exactly get a dance of the Seven Veils, but we did have a Prince Salome in a party dress with long gloves that are pulled off in the manner reminiscent of an old-fashioned and sleazy striptease. In the Q&A session that the audience were able to attend on the night I saw the show, it was asked if nudity was ever considered as necessary at that point. It was discussed in rehearsal, but quickly felt unnecessary. Sexuality and sensuality are important here, as they were in Wilde's original, but of equal importance is that this is the point where the battle of the wills between Salome and Herod reaches its crescendo. The point where Salome has control of Herod, and where she, and in this case he, is also vulnerable and exposed. The price for the dance is terrible, but it's terrible for both Herod and for Salome. Jochenen is a character that's no longer confined in the system, but walks trance-like around the playing space. His unseeing eyes and repetitive rotations represent his prison, with his constant presence being accusatory and powerful. He's intrinsically part of the action, but also held detached from it. At one point, his pacing was mirrored by Herodias, as she pleaded with Herod and Salome for respect, but any balancing of her position with Jochenen's was momentary. And all of this in a traverse presentation, with the audience up close to the two long sides of a raised platform that was the stage. In this production, the head of Jochenen is represented by a blood-filled bag that the almost naked Salome seems to luxuriate in as the play reaches its climax. This is more theatrical than erotic, but oh so stylish. It's the kind of play that you come away from feeling a bit wrung out, but exhilarated from the sensory experience too. For 75 minutes, our senses have been challenged with loud, repetitive music, stage smoke blown around by large fans, copious amounts of blood and passionate feelings expressed as fears and desires and love too. And I should emphasise here how important the set design is to the success of the production. It's very sparse and stripped back, all black, gold and red, and emphasising the symbolist and stylized nature of the play. It's a place where extremes of emotions can happen and get played out to their deadly end. Salome will probably always be anchored in the story of its creator, but in this production, Lazarus Theatre lifted it out of that and made it something much more modern and alive to addressing the issues of our time, doing exactly what theatre should do, not giving us neat answers, but asking difficult questions about the nature of our desires.
If you want to know more about Lazarus Theatre, they have an excellent and recently revamped website full of information about them and pictures of the past productions, including Salome. You can find that at www.lazarustheatrecompany.co.uk and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. I've also put up some details and pictures on the blog page of the podcast website, that's www.thehistoryofeuropeantheatre.com. That includes some of the cartoons poking fun at Wilde and the aesthetics from Punch magazine and the illustrations by Albury Beardsley based on the play that Wilde liked but found little favour with the Pall Mall magazine that had commissioned them. Next time, in another bonus episode, we're still in Victorian London as a Shakespearean scholar looks back at the late 16th century and introduces the work of a man who at times worked alongside the Bard in the London playhouses. I look forward to your company then, but if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. (laughs) 